Hi, this is Martine. Before we start today's show, I just want to thank all the listeners who've become Washington Post subscribers this week. It is so heartening and edifying to know that you value the journalism that you hear on the show. If you have not yet become a subscriber, check out the offer that we've got going exclusively for podcast listeners, $59 total for a two-year digital subscription to The Washington Post. It's an affordable way for you to help make this daily podcast possible. To sign up, go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe or find a link in today's show notes. And again, thank you so much. From the newsroom of The Washington Post... Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from the Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at the Washington Post. It's Lori Aritani over at the Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, January 22nd. Today, how Biden plans to tackle the pandemic, the early failures at the CDC, and what the new coronavirus variant means for you. So, Amy, when it comes to the pandemic, what is the state of the country that President Biden is inheriting right now? Well, the state of the country isn't very good. In May, the U.S. recorded 100,000 deaths. By September, that figure doubled. Now it's doubled again. In the day's other news, the U.S. reached 400,000 deaths from COVID-19, nearly equal to the number of Americans killed in World War II. 100,000 of those occurred just in the past month. A sobering prediction tonight that the toll could quickly go much higher. This week, we crossed a bad milestone with 400,000 deaths since the first case of COVID-19 was detected in the United States exactly a year ago. And as of this morning, there are 24 million people who have been infected, and those are the cases that have been reported. We don't even know how much COVID-19 is out there infecting people whose cases aren't known. I'm Amy Goldstein, and I'm the Washington Post's national healthcare policy writer. President Biden has obviously expressed a real desire to take the pandemic more seriously, to take more drastic actions to get these numbers under control. But what is he actually planning for these first days in office to move quickly to address this? Well, now President Biden has been saying since he was a candidate and then uh, when he was president-elect that he believed there should be a more federally directed response. I understand the despair and frustration of so many Americans and how they're feeling. I understand why many governors, mayors, county officials, tribal leaders feel like they're left on their own without a clear national plan to get them through the crisis. The Trump administration was very focused on giving each state latitude to decide how it wanted to approach things such as a testing plan um, or even how to allocate vaccines once the federal government decided how much to ship to a given state. And uh, the new administration has been saying they want a stronger federal hand. Biden himself, who's been saying you know, over and over that he regarded the pandemic as kind of job number one, has been very visibly doing things. Today, today, I'm unveiling a national strategy on COVID-19 and executive actions to beat this pandemic. 
So Wednesday, hours after his inauguration, Biden signed 17 executive orders, three of which were to respond to the pandemic. And on Thursday, he signed 10 more COVID-related executive orders and a few presidential memorandums. And basically what he's trying to do is those things for which an administration has direct power, not things that they need to work out with Congress or anybody else. So for weeks and months, Biden had been saying that people really ought to wear masks. And in early December, he said that he wanted to, on his first day in office, issue an order saying that for a hundred days, he wanted to require people to wear masks wherever he could in federal buildings, on federal lands, for people who work for the federal government or federal contractors. Yesterday, I signed an executive action that requires masks and social distancing on federal property. Today, we'll be signing an additional executive action to extend masking requirements on interstate travel, like on trains, planes, and buses. So he can't, as president, dictate mask wearing all over the place, but he did it where he could. That was one of his day one actions. So if that is a reflection of this new attitude from the Biden administration, that this is a national problem and therefore the solutions need to be federal solutions, how does that apply to something like testing? Well, what he is saying is that there are a few things that the government can do to try to help with what's been a pretty chronic problem about testing not always being as available as um, it should be. One thing he's doing is saying there should be more large-scale testing sites in places like gyms or sports arenas or community centers. He's not saying yet where they're all going to be, but he's saying that the federal government, if necessary, should help to run them. He's also saying that there should be more money put in to build up a public health workforce of people who are paid both to administer vaccines and to go into communities, especially communities where people are known to be reluctant to take the vaccine and try to encourage people to get shots. Today, I'm formalizing the Health Equity Task Force, led by the brilliant Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith, who ensures that is going to ensure that equality is at the core of every decision we make. That includes addressing vaccine hesitancy and building trust in communities, as well as fighting disinformation campaigns that are already underway. So those are ways that he can kind of leverage federal resources without having it actually fully done by the federal government. But how quickly could those things actually happen, especially considering how both testing and now the distribution and administering of vaccines, they seem to have been so fraught with problems in a way that makes it appear difficult to turn around pretty quickly? Well, how fast it can be done depends on who has to go along with the idea. So some of the things that Biden is doing by executive order, he can just decree. What's trickier is a whole set of things and um, money to build a public health workforce would be a good example of it, where he's asking Congress to devote more money. There's already been some relief packages, but this would be money to specifically do those things that the new administration is saying are good ideas. And in a briefing Wednesday before Thursday's executive orders um, were signed, staff to the new president said repeatedly, I know these bold, practical steps will not come cheaply, 
but failing to do so will cost us so much more dearly. I look forward to working with members of both parties in the Congress. We're in a national emergency, and it's time we treat it like one. So they're acknowledging that much of what they're saying in a brand new national strategic plan for the government to respond to COVID-19 is going to really depend on Congress's willingness to put up some more funding. So in addition to his mandate on mask wearing, what are the other actions that Biden has taken immediately in this first sweep of executive orders? Well, on Wednesday, the first day uh, he was in office, he did two other things, and they both explicitly reversed uh, steps that President Trump had taken. So uh, the Trump administration had begun to withdraw from the World Health Organization, which obviously has been working very hard on uh, responding to the pandemic. This country hadn't fully pulled out of the WHO because it takes many months to do that. But what Biden did on Wednesday was essentially halt the process of withdrawing from the WHO. The other thing he did was something internal to the White House. There had been, until about three years ago, a unit within uh, the National Security Council on the White House that was focused on global health security and biodefense. And the other executive order from Wednesday says that office is going to come back into existence. What does Biden plan to do to make the coronavirus vaccine more accessible? Well, Biden has been saying that he wants to really intensify the leverage of the federal government to get supplies made. Our national plan launches a full-scale wartime effort to address the supply shortages by ramping up production and protective equipment, syringes, needles, you name it. There's something called the Defense Production Act that he talks about a lot. It's a 1950s law that allows the government during wartime or other kinds of national emergencies to ramp up manufacturing of certain things. When I say wartime, people kind of look at me like wartime. Well, as I said last night, 400,000 Americans have died. That's more than have died in all of World War II. And he's saying in this uh, strategy that he wants to use that law and anything else he can grab his hand on federal uh, law or policy to do things like make sure there are enough glass vials for the vaccine as it's being made, to make sure there are enough syringes, to make sure there's enough protective gear, both for people who are out around the country administering vaccine, but also for healthcare workers. And I explained, as I explained last week, We'll move heaven and earth to get more people vaccinated for free and create more places for them to get vaccinated, to mobilize more medical teams to get shots in people's arms, and to increase vaccine supply and get it out the door as fast as possible. Yesterday, we got started. We directed the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, to start standing up the first federally supported community vaccination centers with the goal of standing up 100 centers within the next month. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention will launch the federal pharmacy program to make vaccines available to communities in their local pharmacies, beginning early within, the, I think, by the 7th or 8th of February, but in very early February. Biden and his team have been saying there needs to be much more use of the uh, Defense Production Act. Trump and his team always said, Well, we're doing that. And it's not yet clear 
what further the new administration has in mind or how much more they're really going to change things. But they say they're going to change things. So there's the mask mandate. There are the plans for vaccines and for testing. What else is Biden focusing on in his first plans on coronavirus? Well, another big goal that he's articulated is to try to get schools reopened. Today, we're directing the Department of Education and the Department of Health and Human Services to immediately provide schools and communities with clear guidance and resources to safely reopen the schools and child care centers. So if you think about that overarching goal, a couple of the things that his new national strategy contains are ways to try to do that. One element is to try to increase testing for kids and for teachers and other staff at school so that people feel safer knowing that there's not COVID floating around their building. The plan also has an element of money from FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, uh, to do a bunch of things related to schools, partly to pay for supplies needed for, say, cleaning. As president or as a new administration, the Biden team can't direct schools to reopen. But what they're trying to do is prop up the resources that schools might find helpful to motivate them to do that. It sounds like in this plan and in some of the others that the Biden administration has outlined, what they're hoping to do is to fund things or to redirect money, which is something that they need help from Congress in order to do. And yes, Democrats now have control of the House and the Senate, but that doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to happen in the way that the Biden administration wants or on the timeline that they want. And so I guess to me, it seems like Yes, people are expecting that the switch is going to be flipped just immediately with having a new president, but that it is still going to be a lot more complicated than I think many people hope. Well, I think you're right. And I think that this big request of Congress, I mean, all told, it's $1.9 trillion on top of trillions of dollars of relief money that Congress approved last year. It's really going to be an early test of the Biden administration's agility in two ways. One, in working with a Congress, particularly a Senate, that has the smallest possible Democratic majority, and also in enlisting the sympathy of states, which have really been complaining uh, for much of the past year that they felt they weren't getting enough support or money from the Trump administration. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, whether states or local or state health departments lean on Congress in concert with what the new president is asking for. You know, it seems like in a lot of different ways, the challenge facing the Biden administration is not just what do we do going forward? How do we address the state of the pandemic as it exists right now? But also really having to spend a lot of time, energy, and resources to repair the mistakes that were made from the last year and earlier on in the pandemic, and that they kind of have to go back to the beginning to redo some of the practices and policies that have been put in place before them. I think you're right in that it's going to take effort to change the direction of this big ship. But, you know, I wrote earlier this week with um, our Post colleagues who do the Post-ABC News polls about people's attitudes um, towards coronavirus as the presidency was changing over. 
And it showed that a surprising number of people of both parties said that they're at least somewhat willing to get the vaccines. That matters in terms of public health, but it also matters in terms of politics. I was talking with um, a political scientist who focuses on public attitudes towards healthcare. And he was making what I thought was an important point, which is that how Biden is seen to have done a year from now on fighting this pandemic that he has so explicitly said is his top priority is going to have a lot of bearing on what people think of him generally down the road and how much he may be able to do or not do other things that are important to him uh, as president. So there are big public health stakes, but there are also big stakes for the president who just moved into the White House. Amy Goldstein is a reporter covering healthcare policy for The Post. As the Biden administration is working to fix the problems that have plagued this country since the beginning of the pandemic, it's also helpful to understand how exactly those problems happened in the first place. I've been investigating what happened with the origins of testing for the novel coronavirus in the United States. David Willman is an investigative reporter for The Post. Well, the big question was, why was the initial rollout of DNA testing in the United States so badly delayed? We needed answers to that, obviously, because if you're not testing, you don't know where the virus is. You don't know how to best defend against it. And we saw in real time that other countries that were far less capitalized in the United States seemingly were having a lot more success. So at this very early stage of the pandemic, how quickly did it become possible to test for the coronavirus? The first confirmed coronavirus case outside of China was in Thailand. And that occurred on January 12th. The Thais were very proactive in trying to set up uh, molecular testing for this virus. They had their own connections inside China to try and get some advanced peek at what the genetic structure of this virus was. And they were also trained by our CDC. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has had a substantial presence in Thailand since 1980. So the Thais were well positioned. They were very vigilant. And they were able, with their own molecular tests that they developed, to confirm their first case on January 12th. Then on January, on that same date, it turned out, the Chinese posted for the world the complete genetic sequence of this virus. The next day on January 13th, the World Health Organization, working closely with scientists in Germany, made public a protocol or a recipe for laboratories worldwide to start conducting DNA testing, molecular testing, also called polymerase chain reaction testing. Those are the PCR tests that we hear about a lot now. That's correct, right. So what you're describing really squares with my memories of what it was like at these early stages of the pandemic, where it felt like a lot of countries were very quickly able to do widespread testing in a pretty consistent manner. But then 
then it felt like the U.S. just wasn't capable of that for such a long time. If this World Health Organization test was developed on January 13th, then what happened after that that made it so that we in the U.S. were not able to benefit from that? I would back up even a day before that. So on January 12th, when the ties confirmed the first coronavirus case outside of China, they were in close consultation with our CDC officials there. And the CDC's country director in Thailand phoned his superiors in Atlanta on that day. He felt it was so important that he didn't want to wait until the next day, Monday, and inform them what was going on. The CDC was already taking steps to try and develop its own test as to why the CDC went the route that it did. I mean, I think one of the most reliable explanations of that came publicly on January 17th from a senior CDC official, a director of one of their centers there, Dr. Nancy Messonnier, who announced that as of that day, January 17th, certain other countries, including Thailand, were now detecting confirming cases. She said that the CDC had that capability in-house as of that date, but that the CDC was actually going to work a little longer and harder to develop what she called a more specific test, Hmm. which, you know, I guess you would say is a more sophisticated test. And I think, Hmm. you know, the expectation at the CDC was that they would be able to do that, you know, quite promptly. It turns out that it didn't happen because they encountered a lot of problems with their manufacturing in Atlanta. So at that point, when the CDC is saying, look, we think that we want to develop our own test rather than using this test that everybody else in the world is using, or at least many other countries are using. Were there people inside the CDC who were pushing back against that or or saying, you know, maybe this isn't a great idea, that we should just go ahead and use this other test that is available to us right now? Well, my reporting found a commitment to the CDC developing its own test. And I think that there was an assumption at the CDC that this was not going to be a full-blown crisis with the kind of mortality that we now know that we see. I think the mindset, the presumption that my reporting elicited was that people at CDC, in good faith, expected that this would be kind of a, a situation analogous to SARS or Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, which were greatly feared and became pandemics. But the fact is that although those viruses caused hundreds of deaths worldwide, there's not a single death reported in the United States that was attributed ultimately to either SARS or MERS. So then tell me more about the problems that came up when the CDC was trying to develop this own test for them. Sure. Well, well, first of all, of course, it being real life and and some complicated microbiology involved, (laughs) there's nuance. So the fact is that as of January 19th, the CDC in-house was able to confirm the first case in the United States. They got a sample of sputum that was sent from Washington State from a traveler who had returned from Wuhan, China. Can, can I just ask, what, what is sputum? Because that is a pretty excellent word. So it's mucus and saliva all mixed in together. So that's sputum. Got it. With that sample from that patient, the CDC was able to confirm in-house as of January 19th that, hey, we've got one case here in the United States. And the fact that they were able to do that, I think, also helped contribute to the confidence that we're on the right track. But there's a huge difference from confirming a single case in your own laboratory 
and then manufacturing test kits hmm. with you know all the liquid reagents with complete sterility and that became a gigantic stumbling block for the CDC because the public health laboratories in this country were all counting on the CDC in concert with the regulators at the FDA. The CDC was going to provide the test kits for, you know, at least 120 or so public health laboratories, state labs, county health labs. And that would be the eyes and ears for this virus. What did your reporting tell you about what it was like inside the CDC as it was becoming more apparent that these problems were coming up and that the ability to supply the country with coronavirus tests at the magnitude that they needed to be supplied just was not happening? Up front, there was confidence that, hey, we've got the specialists here, we've got the scientists who have performed before. The lead designer of this test had successfully designed more than a handful of influenza molecular tests. But when these problems started emerging, things just sort of spiraled because there were more and more demands put on the people who were developing the test. Not only were they trying to get these test kits perfected with the manufacturing processes in other laboratories within the CDC. But there were then samples coming in from around the country from the state county health public health labs. Hey, can you give us a quick turnaround on this test? We need to know if we've got coronavirus in our community. Oh, we've got cruise ships now that are, seems like being decimated with coronavirus. We need rapid turnaround. And so there's just a lot of pressures coming to bear on the team that was trying to get these tests completed. And, you know, you had people working seven days a week, extremely long hours. The pressures built and built. And meanwhile, senior leadership at no point intervened to try and come up with a plan B. Hmm. Yeah, I'm curious to hear more about that, about how leaders at the CDC were handling or not handling this problem or recognizing the intensity of the problem that they were facing. So my reporting found that as things continue to sputter with getting these tests manufactured in a form that produces reliable results, the CDC director, Robert Redfield, who of course is a presidential appointee and appointee of Trump, took a sort of distant hands-off role and was consistently assuring people elsewhere in the Department of Health and Human Services and assuring members of the uh, White House Coronavirus Task Force that we've got things under control just another few days, you know, just around the corner, we're going to have it fixed. And unfortunately, that kind of activity went on for the better part of a month. My reporting also found that, again, back inside the CDC, that particular center director who originally put this path to testing in place, Dr. Messonnier, she has told people inside the CDC who are attempting to document what happened and with a hope of learning lessons that will produce better performance in the future. She's not a laboratorian herself. She's an MD. And so she was trusting her subject matter experts. So what do you think this tells us about lessons going forward? What happened here was just an enormous missed opportunity because mm. by the time the CDC was able to start getting those test kits out and put them into use at the public health laboratories, this virus was on the loose. I mean, uh, the moment was missed. It took 46 days from the time that the Thais diagnosed their first case to when the test kits were announced fit and ready to use by the public health laboratories. 
David Wilman is an investigative reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing about the new coronavirus variant. Science reporter Joel Achenbach spoke to Post Reports producer Alexis Dio. On Friday, the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, delivered some alarming news. Since the beginning of this pandemic, we've tried to update you as soon as possible about changes in the scientific data or the analysis. He said that the new variant that's spreading there appears to be possibly more lethal. In addition to spreading more quickly, it also now appears that there is some evidence that the new variant, the variant that was first identified in London and the Southeast, may be associated with a higher degree of mortality. We don't really know if the virus, this new variant, is more lethal. There is this preliminary evidence that it might be, but the UK scientists have have hedged that, saying that this is something they've got to look at. This is what it looks like to them at the moment. This is a change in their conclusion from uh, just a few weeks ago. There is more evidence or more confidence in the conclusion that it's more transmissible, that this is a more contagious uh, version of the virus. There's multiple lines of evidence supporting that conclusion. So all viruses evolve or mutate over time. They just randomly change as they replicate. But every so often, by random chance, one of these mutations will make the virus more fit. We have seen a lot of reports over the last eight or nine months about mutations. But the one that really became important is this United Kingdom strain. They saw this one variant of the virus that had a suite of mutations, had 17 mutations in it. We have identified a new variant of coronavirus, which may be associated with the faster spread in the southeast of England. Similar variants have been identified in other countries over the last few months. Because we'd seen other stories about variants and mutations, I guess at first we were like, well, show us the proof of this. You know, are we sure this is truly more transmissible? This new variant in the United Kingdom did look like it was quite a bit more transmissible. It just circulates more easily for reasons not entirely known. Do we know how much more easily transmissible it is? The British scientists believe the strain there, the variant there, is roughly 50% more transmissible. So it, rather than infecting 10 other people, you would, might infect 15 other people. Wow. It's a big difference, in, particularly because it kind of builds up over time. In short order, this one variant can become the dominant strain everywhere. Are we seeing this new UK strain pop up here in the United States? The UK strain is here in the United States. It's probably been here for a few months. 
it's not very prevalent. There's not there's not a whole lot of it here. If you look at this catastrophic winter surge that we've had, the UK strain is not the driving force behind that surge, according to the scientists we've interviewed. But because it is more transmissible, the scientists think, it is likely to become the dominant strain here in a couple of months, maybe by the end of March. That is the current forecast from the CDC based on one of their models. The key thing to understand is there are lots of variants. This is just one of them. It's the one that's best understood or the one that's been studied the most closely. But the the virus is constantly mutating. We've seen that in South Africa, Brazil. There's one in California that is causing some concern. It's not entirely obvious that it's truly more transmissible. But people are looking at this very closely It's a reminder that the virus is not a static entity. This is Darwinian natural selection happening in real time. There's millions and millions of cases of people infected. Each of those cases gives the virus a chance to mutate and potentially become more fit as a virus. When we talk about vaccines, I think a lot of people are asking this question, which is, What do we know about how the vaccines that are available, will they protect us from this new strain? The big scientific question right now is, will these mutations in the virus somehow prevent the vaccines from working? It's important to know that the current UK variant, the vaccines appear to work fine against it. There are some other variants out there that have other mutations that may raise some problems in terms of how effective the vaccines are. The good news is that you can tweak the vaccines to respond to mutant versions of this virus. The platform they use to create the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines is readily altered. It allows you to change the formula of the vaccine fairly quickly to respond to mutations in the virus. But but that means you have to really study those mutations and keep track of them, monitor them in real time so you know what you're dealing with. People should not panic about this. It's really important for people to understand. Even with these mutations, it's essentially the same virus. It transmits the same way, but it doesn't fundamentally change the way it's moving from person to person. So should people be recalculating everyday activities? Should people be reconsidering some of the things that they have been doing, whether it's meeting friends outside with masks but staying six feet apart? Is that something that people in their everyday lives should be reassessing differently than before? I think at a pragmatic level, the variants don't make a difference in how we should live our lives. If we are following best practices, you know, wearing a mask, the only thing I would say is that it could prolong the pandemic a bit because you may need to have a higher level of immunity in the population through natural immunity of having survived the infection or through vaccines, you may need a higher level to reach herd immunity. And so that could affect sort of our calendar looking ahead. You know, when will this pandemic be over? But in a, in a kind of a day-to-day in nuts and bolts perspective on this is you just keep doing what you know is the right thing to do, which is to be careful, take 
common sense precautions and do what the experts tell you to do and take this virus seriously and try to limit transmission, that will make an enormous difference. And, and really, I think human behavior is the big difference maker. Joel Achenbach covers science for The Post. Alexis Diao is a producer and editor on Post Reports. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Svernovsky are associate producers. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 